Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law. I'm Kimberly Atkins Store. And we may be down one sister this week as Joyce Vance takes a much deserved vacation, but we all still are here with a lot to talk about. This week's topics include Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch's actions signaling that a key First Amendment ruling may be revisited former President Trump's lawsuit against social media companies, and the DOJ's focus on the January 6th rioters' attacks on journalists. And as always, we'll be answering some of your questions at the end of the show. But first, uh, Jill Winebanks and Barb McQuaid, I want to talk about some news that happened this week. It seems that the attorneys who have represented the former president in the past are facing some consequences. Barb, what's going on? Well, we've seen uh, Rudy Giuliani uh, get his law license suspended, not only in New York, but this week uh, the District of Columbia added itself to the list. And also Sidney Powell uh, is facing a court hearing on Monday. Uh, there was a, a uh, an adjournment in the hearing that was supposed to be this week for sanctions for the lawsuit that she filed in Michigan uh, challenging the election results, the judge dismissed her lawsuit summarily, saying that it was you know frivolous and in, in fact designed to undermine public confidence in the election outcome. And so she's facing sanctions. So those those two things are uh, are bubbling along. And does that surprise you, Jill? That these I mean, it seemed like we had been talking about this for so long, and that you know nobody, not Sidney Powell or, or Rudy Giuliani or Linwood or anyone, would would face any consequences for for just complete lies that they were pushing. It doesn't surprise me. It surprises me that it took so long, and there are so many other lawyers who are potential. Uh, candidates for suspension of licenses, including our former Attorney General, Bill Barr. I think that lawyers should be warned, and this sort of relates to one of our topics for today, which is the lawsuit that was filed against social media companies, and whether the lawyers there have to think twice about whether they filed a frivolous lawsuit or whether it has some chance of prevailing. So this is a good thing that the legal profession is starting to monitor itself. Um, And I hope that they will keep this up. And I look forward to the hearing on Monday for Sidney Powell's case as well. And I want to add one other thing. We are down because of Joyce not being here, but I'm wearing two special pins in her honor. I'm wearing some lobsters Mm -hmm. because she's enjoying Maine lobster right now. I know it. And so, in a way, she's with us today through my Jill's pins. Joyce is always with us, and we do hope that she is having a fantastic time. That's so nice. So, I, I hope someone's watching the chickens. <laughs> I'm sure the chickens are well taken care of. Those chicken, their accommodations are nicer than my house, I'm sure. <laughs> So let's get to our first topic, which was a signal from Justice Gorsuch that one of the cornerstone free speech cases that the Supreme Court has decided could be revisited. Uh, Barb, tell us about that. Yeah. So last week in dissenting opinions, Justices Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch suggested that perhaps it is time to revisit the Supreme Court's landmark decision regarding libel law, a case many people learn about in law school, New York Times versus Sullivan. 
1964, the Supreme Court decided that case, um, and they set a very high standard for libel lawsuits when it involves public officials and public figures. Um, Donald Trump has, for many years, famously called for changes to our nation's libel laws to make it easier for public figures to sue members of the media. Um, And now, as technology has made it uh, easier for people to become public figures and for uh, everybody to become a publisher, Justice Gorsuch is suggesting that maybe it is time to revisit the decision in New York Times versus Sullivan. So first, let's talk about New York Times versus Sullivan itself. Jill, can you tell us what is libel and what did the court hold in 1964? And why is that holding important to our concept of a free press in a democracy? Okay, those are great questions, Barb. And New York Times versus Sullivan is a landmark case that has stood the test of time to this point. Um, It was decided the year I entered law school and the lawyer who argued the case, the winning side, was my law professor. So it's something that I've been aware of for more years than most of you have been alive, for our listeners, for sure. Um, And it is a question in that case of a public official, an elected official, claiming that he was defamed, libeled, that that something false was said about him. And the standard that the court said is that if you're a public official, and it's later been extended to public figures, that that is famous people, not just average citizens, but people whose names are in the paper, not just elected officials, that if you're a public official, it's not enough that a statement is false, because that would make it impossible for the media to report on things if they could be held liable for anything that they made a mistake on. It has to be basically malicious, deliberately false, knowingly false, or in reckless disregard for the truth. So something that, for example, the lawyers that we have just been talking about have said things that they know are false, that are in reckless disregard of their lack of truth. Those are the kind of things that you could be um, held liable for saying about a particular person under the New York Times Sullivan. And it's really important because in the days when it was decided, and really until now, the mainstream media has to be able to cover things. In New York Times versus Sullivan, it was the civil rights movement. And it was um, people saying that the sheriff in Alabama, sorry that Joyce isn't here to defend her state. She um, wouldn't in this situation. That they had been doing, the, <laughs> she, she would be, she would point out how many of the Supreme Court cases stem from Alabama. Um, and. So it was a question of their being able to report on the fact that the state was trying to quash all the civil rights activity. And they did get something wrong, which actually in that case is believed to have helped the sheriff, not hurt him. So he couldn't prove damages. And so under a law in Alabama, he didn't have to. All he had to do was say that it was false and inaccurate. And the Supreme Court said, no, in order to protect the press, to allow them to report on critical issues for the country, you have to prove that they did it on purpose, that they lied 
and knew that the facts they were reporting were wrong. Yeah, and so, you know, of course, a libel suit occurs when someone says, you defamed me. You said something that's not true, and it has caused harm to my reputation in the community, and I should get money damages to make me whole again. And so this First Amendment uh, defense says that when you're a public figure or public official, it's different. By the way, Jill, as you mentioned, um, the things that were false in this case um, were some pretty minor details. One, um, you know, this is this full page ad that yes. had been taken out by uh, supporters of Martin Luther King and protesters, students in Alabama. And um, among the things that were alleged to have been false were that um, police officers formed a ring around students as they sang My Country Tis of Thee. In fact, the students were singing the national anthem and the police officers did not form a ring around them, but were simply deployed nearby. <laughs> and so I think the point there was, um, even if some of these details are inaccurate, as long as it is substantially correct, the gist of the representation is correct, then um, that's going to be enough. You have to show, as you said, this actual malice, that it's false and that they knew it was false uh, or they were reckless in disregard for for what was true. So um, so that that's the law as it was. And now let's think about where Justice Gorsuch may be coming from. Kim, what has changed since 1964 regarding technology that makes Justice Gorsuch think we should revisit it? So certainly the media landscape has changed in that time. Uh, Justice Gorsuch is 100% right about that. And he is, uh, just to say, he's not the first person to have uh, questioned New York Times v. Sullivan as a standard. Uh, Justice Clarence Thomas has been doing it for years. Um, but but Neil Gorsuch is, is really making a specific point. He's saying, look, in an, in an internet age, in a social media age, Two things are wrong that makes this standard unworkable. One is the fact that someone can become a, a limited purpose, limited purpose public figure very easily. So, under the standard by Sullivan and its progeny, if you are a public figure, either somebody who is famous, everyone knows you, share or somebody who has thrust themselves into a public controversy. So somebody who may not have been famous before, but came out and started uh, and just sort of inserted themselves into a public controversy, um, then you have a higher standard to meet to show that you have been defamed. Well, Neil Gorsuch is saying, you, you have TikTok famous people who you know spring up in a matter of minutes and you know 10 minutes later, they're gone. So should they have to prove a higher standard if they are defamed? The other thing that has changed is disinformation. Social media disinformation can spread like wildfire. And unlike at the time that the Sullivan decision came down, the idea is that, okay, well, we want to limit these defamation claims. But at the same time, if, if bad information gets out in the marketplace of ideas, good information can counteract that. And that can reduce the amount of damage that is done. When you're on social media and a rumor spreads about you, it's almost impossible to undo that damage because it spreads so quickly. And also, we don't have the same sort of common set of facts with all the disinformation that's going on out there. So he uses those facts to question whether this is still a workable standard or whether the court should go back in and 
take another look at it or overturn the standard altogether. I'd like to add one thing to what Kim said. Everything she said is correct, but I think we haven't quite made clear that for a non-public figure or a non-public official, there is a standard that says all you have to prove is that it is false, and that's it. If it's false, then you are defamed. If you're a public figure who can defend themselves and prove something, uh, say what is actually, in your opinion, true, you have to show that the falsity exists and that the speaker knew that it was false or acted in reckless disregard. So it's a higher standard of proof that is called upon if you are going to have a case of uh, libel against a public yeah, that's figure. A, that's a good clarification. Or, uh, on behalf yeah, of a public figure. And it's, hard to, and it's hard. It's hard to meet that standard. Well, what I want to get into now is, Kim, what I heard you, you talking about raising some of the good points that Justice Gorsuch has raised about how the landscape has changed in light of technology, especially the disinformation. And if um, something false about you is out there on social media, it's very difficult to unring that bell. Um, but you wrote a column um, defending the current state of the law in New York Times versus Sullivan. Can you share with us your views on that? Yeah, you know, it's a couple of things. One, um, I agree, obviously, that social media has completely changed the landscape. Um, and there is a lot of disinformation out there. And on that point, I share Justice Gorsuch's concern. But um, for a couple of reasons. One, when we're talking about defamation suits, usually the purveyors of this disinformation are anonymous unknown folks who spread things on the internet, and we know how that can take off. And so it wouldn't really be a, a something that could be solved by a defamation suit anyway, if you don't even know who your defendant might be. But more importantly, what I worry about is if we revisit the standard and lower it, it's really going to have a devastating effect on the ability of the press to uh, vigorously cover uh, public officials, particularly smaller media organizations, online media organizations, if the justification is given that uh, news online spreads faster. I think about, and this wasn't uh, a strict libel case, but the ability of people uh, in power to kind of flex their muscles on the media. And I think about uh, Peter Thiel, I think I'm saying his name right, um, uh, the former uh, PayPal co-founder who funded a ton of lawsuits against Gawker because he was angry about a story that Gawker wrote about him. And so Gawker is facing all of these lawsuits, one brought by uh, Hulk Hogan over a leaked sex tape, uh, won a jury verdict that put Gawker out of business. That was a sustained effort to attack a media organization that violates the the spirit, if not the letter of the First Amendment to me, and even New York Times v. Sullivan itself, the New York Times was facing millions of dollars worth of lawsuits, uh, just like the one that this Alabama police commissioner brought. And this police commissioner actually won a verdict of $500,000 in that case before the Supreme Court reversed it. It was a campaign to silence the New York Times 
in the 60s for what it was writing about the civil rights era. So that's extremely dangerous. And I worry that that those kinds of efforts will be revived. We heard Donald Trump in 2016 when he was on the campaign trail talk about how he wanted to open up the open up the libel laws so that he could sue the New York Times and the Washington Post because they had too many protections. Well, this is the protection that we're talking about. And that seems really um, not just against the First Amendment, but just against democracy. Kim mentioned, um, and, and we're talking about Gorsuch's hinting that it's maybe time to relook at New York Times v. Sullivan. Uh, but in 2019, Justice Thomas made a similar suggestion. And in 1993, the very uh, wonderful Justice Kagan wrote an article while she was teaching at the University of Chicago Law School in which she also raised this issue. And Gorsuch mentions her in his uh, reference recently. So that presents a really interesting perspective on what might happen if this issue comes up. It makes it much more likely that it's not a conservative liberal justice issue, that it may just be a philosophical uh, point of view. And her article is fascinating. Um, I'll put a link in our show notes to that article. Yeah, I think, it, you know, no doubt the landscape has changed. And even if you agreed with New York Times versus Sullivan in 1964, uh, you may have a different view of it today. But, you know, one point that Kim made the, it, that the court does discuss in the opinion is, um, you know, not just the consequences that a newspaper like Gawker or the New York Times could have and go out of business, but the self-censorship that might occur uh, to avoid that scenario, that it might have a chilling effect. It, they say something like, uh, the press no doubt will take an extra wide berth to avoid uh, causing some sort of problem uh, because they'll want to steer clear. And so you can imagine, um, you know, in this Trump era, how important it was that we had the New York Times and the Washington Post and other voices of media pointing out um, issues with uh, President Trump and others, and if he were able to silence them or cause them to self-censor, we would have a less robust press. Well, uh, you know, watch this space, keep an eye on this, because I do think this is a really interesting issue, certainly an important principle in New York Times versus Sullivan, but a changing landscape that could uh, provide basis for, um, for change. Hey, Jill, are you using Noom? I have been using Noom for several months now, and it has made such a difference in my life. I am so much more in control of what I eat and so much more mindful and enjoying what I eat and eating healthier. It's a terrific app that I cannot recommend highly enough. What about you, Barb? Yeah, I've been using Noom for a couple of months. And I've, I've lost like 18 pounds. Wow. It's, um, you know, I think um, a function of COVID that I had 18 pounds to lose uh, and then some. But um, yeah, like Jill, I find that it just um, makes me just really think about what I'm eating. And aside from the, the weight, which I, I really think is just a number, um, it does f cause me to think carefully about what I'm eating. Like I'm I'm not eating any processed food, which I think is what makes a big difference. Just fresh fruits and vegetables and lean meats and things like that really makes a difference. How about you, Kim? I am. You know, one thing I like about it, a couple things. One is that it doesn't take a lot of time. I, I first I thought, oh, this is going to be, you know, so much work. It really isn't. It's just a few minutes a day. 
uh, on the app that can make a big difference. And I also really like how it integrates um, other things that I use. If I go running and use my running app, then that shows up on the app. If I am, you know, tracking what I eat on another app, that shows up too. It's all very integrated in apps that I was already using. So it's really useful. And, you know, it's not about what you eat. It's about how you eat. The Noom app is easy to use and a really powerful tool, which teaches you how to understand your cravings and build new habits to hit your goals. Noom shows you how to pursue the goals you set for yourself and make sure you reach them. Focusing on motivation and improvement, not diet drinks and airbrushed expectations. If you're like us, you're busy. So I love that Noom only asks for 10 minutes a day, and you can do it at any time of day or night. And over 80% of Noomers end up finishing the program, and over 60% have stuck with their goals for at least one year. That means real results. So start building better habits for healthier long-term results. Sign up for your trial at noom.com slash sistersinlaw. That's N-O-O-M dot com slash sistersinlaw to sign up for your Noom trial. You can also look for their link in our show notes. So our next topic is Donald Trump, speaking of, uh, who filed several lawsuits against Twitter and other social media companies. He has an interesting argument there, Jill. Why don't you... Why don't you tell us about that? I will. Um, First, you have to put it in context. Donald Trump incited a riot on January 6th, and the next day, Twitter barred him from their platform. So did Facebook and Google's YouTube. This week, Trump sued all three, claiming that suspending or banning him violates his First Amendment rights uh, and claiming that they are really government actors and they can't do that. He has included some additional plaintiffs or others who were also barred from those platforms for what he calls our similar or unexplained reasons, making this a class action. And the American Conservative Union, which is the host of CPAC, uh, is also joining. He's asked for compensatory and punitive damages in an amount to be determined. He's asked for reinstatement and the removal of all warnings about false statements in his postings. And um, he's also asked for a declaration from the court that the Communications Decency Act is unconstitutional because it lets social media control what gets posted on their websites. Um, And I know that it seems obvious to all of us that this is not a case covered by the First Amendment, which reads, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. It says nothing about private or public corporations restricting speech. And because all the defendants here are private companies, they are not Congress and they're not a state, which is incorporated in the First Amendment by the 14th Amendment. Let's look at what Trump's lawyers claim to make this a valid lawsuit. So, Barb, let's start with you and sort of the multi-step approach taken by the former president's lawyers uh, to justify making this a First Amendment Yeah, multi-step is a, is a good way to think about it, Jill. So um, <laughs> you have to read it a couple of times. Um, but, but here is what appears to be saying. They are essentially <laughs> arguing that Democrats in Congress have urged the social media companies like Twitter and Facebook 
to ban Donald Trump from their platforms, and they have threatened to remove some of the protection they get under the law uh, if they don't. And so in response to this coercion, Twitter and Facebook and YouTube have censored Donald Trump and other conservative users of these services, uh, and that has transformed them into state actors for purposes of violating the First Amendment. So I think this is some pretty twisted uh, logic. Um, As you pointed out, Jill, the First Amendment protects uh, individuals from overreach by the government, not from private companies, uh, regardless of of their motives. And, And I think the first sign that this is not a serious legal document, this is not a serious lawsuit, this is a you know, fundraising publicity stunt is that it it references Democrat members of Congress, Um, even though, of course, the name of the party is the Democratic Party. You know, that is some weird tick that right-wing extremists used to, I think, you know, they think somehow they're owning the libs by mispronouncing the name of the party. I I think it makes them sound (laughs) like unserious people. And I think it's going to annoy any judge who will also find it to be unserious. Um, but it goes even beyond that. Among the Democrat legislators that they cite for this sort of coercion is one Michelle Obama. Now, last I checked, she was not a legislator, <laughs> Democrat or otherwise. <laughs> well, when we look at some of the silly things that are in this lawsuit, and I'm sorry for for talking this way, but it's hard for me to keep a straight face and not, you know, treat it this way. Uh, but, but Kim, I want to say, have you talk about whether it is so totally frivolous, or is there some possibility the Supreme Court, this particular Supreme Court, could see it differently? And, and I want to call your attention particularly to some of the examples used in the complaint about things that he said that they didn't like, which is his pressing hydroxychloroquine as a cure for oh COVID or questioning the integrity of the 2020 election. Um, <sighs> so if you could talk about that, I think it might help our listeners. So, yeah, the, the quick answer to the top, no, the Supreme Court is not going to be fooled. I don't think any court is going to be fooled by this. I mean, it, it almost, it seems uh, inappropriate to talk about the fact that this Supreme Court is actually very protective of First Amendment rights in general. This so, this falls so far outside of actual, like, First Amendment controversies that I don't even, that's not why that they wouldn't consider this. No one would. But we also, I, th- I think many of our listeners have known, you, you think about um, the case uh, of the fact that you have free speech, but that doesn't extend to the right to, say, yell fire, falsely yell fire in a crowded theater, right? So when you have the president of the United States claiming falsely that uh, something is a cure in the middle of a pandemic, that is not a cure. That is a problem. And I think the complaint only bolsters the fact that this isn't a claim because, of course, a private actor has the ability to act to stop that person the same way that a movie theater usher could come down and say, if you don't stop <laughs> saying fire, you got to get out, right? It's a, it's the, the, a different, uh, it's the same coin, just in a different um, circumstance. So no, I don't actually think any of these things, and also some of these things, you know, calling um 
you know, using really racist language to describe the pandemic is something that incited violence against Asian Americans across the country. This is serious stuff. Uh, And there was a reason why these media companies acted. Uh, And so, no, that does not make his case stronger. If anything, it it is serving as a defense uh, against this claim. So your comment makes me think about, isn't it uh, sort of almost obvious that the media, or or in this case, the websites, uh, the defendants in this case, have their own First Amendment rights, that they are private companies, and that they can publish what they want to publish, and that they can protect their viewers, their, their members, from false information. I, yeah. And that this lawsuit ignores well, I don't even that. think you need the First Amendment to get there. They're private companies. They set the rules. When you sign up to use Facebook or Twitter or anything, you may not read them, but there are terms uh, and agreements <laughs> that you agree to. And every now and again, those terms change, and you get a little notice saying, hey, by the way, if you use this, you agree that you are going to abide by our rules. It is more contractual um, than it even is constitutional. And so I think they have very strong standing um, to, and they can do it for any reason or no reason. Um, so I think they have very strong uh, standing here in terms of their defense. And by the way, one of the terms of conditions is that <laughs> any lawsuit would be filed in the Northern District of California, not in the Southern District of Florida. Whoopsie. So that right there, they have violated the terms of service. They can't sue where they have sued, which raises the question of are his lawyers likely to be in the same position that Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell are, and where they could face sanctions or disbarment. I wouldn't have filed this. I wouldn't have filed this claim if I was an attorney. Listen, we all listen. We all know there are times that your client, maybe honestly, may come to you and think that they have some sort of cause of action and they may want you to sue. And it is your job to tell them, no, no, <laughs> there is no claim here. I'm not going to file a complaint. And that is certainly what these attorneys should have done. So one of the other parts of this uh, suit is the argument against the Communications Decency Act as being unconstitutional. And Barb, I'd love for you to talk about whether that law um, has any pros and cons that might uh, be raised in this suit. Yeah, so Jill, not only does it appear that they filed this lawsuit in the wrong venue, but it also appears that they have failed to comply with Federal (laughs) Rule of Civil Procedure 5.1, which says when you're challenging the constitutionality of a statute, you have to give notice to the Attorney General of the United States so that he can intervene and so that the Justice Department can defend the statute. Now, I don't know whether they have or plan to give that notice, but at the end of the day, if there's any legitimate challenge to a a statute on constitutional grounds, the Justice Department gets an opportunity to defend it. But but on the substance, uh, I, I don't think there's anything unconstitutional about it. Let's talk about Section 230 for a second. Um, it is this part of, of the statute that does kind of two different things. One is providing immunity from liability for um, internet service providers. So if, if Twitter, po- uh, let's, if Jill Winebanks puts something on her tweet and there's something about it that's wrong or defamatory or that violates the law in some way, you can sue Jill Winebanks, but you can't sue Twitter for that. They are just the service, they're just providing uh, the feed. They're not uh, verifying the content in any way. It also allows 
these internet service providers, social media companies, to remove anything that they think violates their terms of service. So if they say, we don't want anything violent on here, we don't want anything pornographic on here, uh, we don't want anything that's inciting violence or racism or whatever it is, they are allowed to take, take it down. And in fact, um, that statute is sometimes referred to as the 26 words that invented the internet. Uh, because it was this freedom that allowed all of these internet companies to kind of run wild and do what they did. If they had instead, just as we talked about in the last segment, these rigid rules where they had to be very careful about putting things up that could get them sued, it would not have allowed them the freedom to publish. So those 26 words say, no provider or user of an interactive computer service, that's like a Twitter, for example, shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another content provider. So that could be you as the Twitter user. So uh, so those things uh, don't in any way implicate constitutional rights. They're statutes. And I think that maybe it's worthwhile as we see disinformation proliferating on the internet. Maybe the time has come to revisit whether those are good. But those are policy questions that the legislature would have to decide. Those aren't matters of constitutional law. And in fact, I think that Donald Trump should be careful what he wishes for, because um, if there were no Section 230, these social media companies would have to censor everything. There would be no more ability for people to say the election was stolen because Twitter and others would be worried about defamation and claims of, of false statements there. So um, we would, I think, be left without you know, any political discourse whatsoever and probably nothing but cat videos. No offense to cats. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, Barb, what, what you said in the very beginning is sort of the end of this discussion, which is the real reason for filing this suit is not because it has a chance of succeeding. It's because it's a fundraising tool. It is something that from the moment it was filed has been used to raise money from Trump supporters. Is there any other reason that you can think of that this was well, filed? Well, it seems like, I agree that that seems like part of the motive. It's also part of uh, Trump's persona of um, uh, using grievance as a way to get attention. You know, we had the, yes. the uh, indictment a week ago. We were talking about the indictment against the Trump organization and the CFO. This bumps uh, that headline out of the newspapers. And instead, we're talking about this topic. Um, and, you know, one of the things I think that's so key about this as a class action is another line that Trump loves to use, which is, you know, it may look like they're going after me, but they're not just going after me. When they go after me, they're really going after you. And so I think this is all about building support among his base uh, in this grievance. And once again, you know, going after um, the media, in this instance, social media as an enemy of the people. I think that that's true. And I honestly think that it's win-win for Trump. Look, first of all, I will say I I don't know that Trump doesn't believe this is true. We have seen for five years that he has very little, if any, grasp uh, on the law or the Constitution or how any of that works. So maybe he thinks this is a, a, a non-frivolous suit. I don't know. But on the one hand, he um, uses things that are in his favor, like the fact that he was not uh, indicted as part of that New York um, suit uh, to say, see, you know, I was in, I was innocent. I'm exonerated or both of his impeachments. I was exonerated. See, it was it was a witch hunt. And then when he files a suit like this and it's thrown out, he uses it as grievance and says, see, it's the courts are against me because it's the deep state. Like either way, he can claim something that he can throw to his supporters and get them all riled up. I mean, so it's really 
he's really there's no disincentive for him to do these kinds of things. Kim, have you heard about Amazon Pharmacy Pill Pack, how it saves you time and why others should try it? Yeah, you know, I was thinking about how many things that we had to do online during the pandemic, and we learned that some of those things are really convenient to do even long after the pandemic will be over. And I think uh, Pill Pack is a perfect example of that. I never liked going to the pharmacy to pick things up. And if it shows up at my house, or I'll forget, if it shows up at my house, that's so much better. What about you, Jill? The same thing. It is particularly helpful for things that aren't necessarily available at your local pharmacy. Some of the specialty uh, prescriptions that your doctor might give you. I've gotten some through PillPack that I couldn't even get at my local pharmacy. So it's been very helpful. And particularly, of course, during COVID when I wasn't leaving the house, it was very terrific. And it's so easy that why not keep it up? Well, Amazon's pharmacy, PillPack, is easy to use, and it works with most insurance companies. You can order from home and save time and money. They even coordinate with your local doctor, so all you have to do is wait for your prescription to come right to your door. You can choose between 30 and 90-day supplies, and if you're a Prime member, you can even get six months' worth of prescription medication at any time not to mention savings and two-day delivery. Even without insurance, you can save on prescription medications, sometimes paying as little as a dollar a month, but it works with most insurance companies too. Amazon Prime members can save on prescription medication when not using insurance with medication as low as a dollar a month plus free two-day delivery. Learn more at amazon.com sisters. That's amazon.com sisters. Again, Amazon.com slash sisters, or look for the link in our show notes. So our third topic for the day is the DOJ's new focus on January 6th attackers who went after journalists on that day. So several people who were at the January 6th attacks and who were attacking journalists, whether it was destroying their equipment or assaulting them or, or committing other crimes against journalists, have been arrested. Uh, it seems a part of a new concerted effort, a, a new focus by the Department of Justice uh, to uh, uh, prosecute people who attacked the press on that day. Uh, several people have been arrested. There could be more arrests. So, Barb, tell us what you make of the fact that the DOJ seems very focused in these prosecutions now on people who, specifically on people, who attacked journalists on that day. Is it sending a signal beyond what is contained in these individual indictments that we've seen so far? I, I think possibly. You know, it's hard to know exactly what is motivating the decisions, but one of the things that prosecutors consider is first, is there um, sufficient evidence such that I can obtain and sustain a conviction in this case? So even though probable cause is all you need to file charges, prosecutors know if you're filing, that means you're going to go before a jury or or ask for a guilty plea, in which case you need to be able to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. So that's question one. But that's not the end of the inquiry. There's also a separate part, not just the can we charge part, but the should we charge part. And here's where I think the Justice Department needs to prioritize as they're looking at, you know, potentially hundreds of cases they've already 
already charged more than 500 and thinking about um, how to prioritize these cases. And although the charges are no different when the victim is a journalist than it would be if the victim were any other person walking down the hallways of the Capitol on January 6th, I do think that the motive of, of harming a member of the press makes it a more compelling case in the should charge category. And the, it, it could even be something that is requested at the time of sentencing to ask for even uh, a more stringent sentence, because not only were they physically attacking a person and physically damaging their property. Some of the cases are about stomping on cameras and other equipment and deliberately destroying it, deliberately going after people because they were members of the press. I think in light of the honored tradition in our country of protecting the press, of Donald Trump's mantra that the press are the enemies of the people, and also the press's ability to capture that day what happened, uh, I could imagine some escalation of this as a priority to to focus on cases where the press members of the press were targeted because of their status as members of the press. Yeah, and Jill, this is part of a, a turning of a tide of sorts uh, from the previous administration, which also often took uh, action against journalists. Uh, consider also that last month, the Department of Justice said uh, that it would no longer uh, secretly seize reporters' records, which is something that happened um, in this administration, also other other past administrations as well. So, what do you make of this? Do you think do you think this is a, a concerted shift, a, a, a decided change of approach by Merrick Garland's DOJ? I think it is, but I think there's more to it than that. Um, first of all, it counters four years of Donald Trump attacking the press and saying they're bad and the evil enemy people of the people and encouraging the enemy of the people and encouraging his um, supporters at rallies to attack the press, um, which was creating, I think, a serious threat to how we get information. Um, but I also think, I mean, just practically speaking, that this is almost the next logical step. The only people who were there for this were members of Congress and their staff, the Capitol Police, journalists, and the insurrectionists. So the first focus seemed to be on you know, members of Congress and the police who were protecting them. And now the people left who might have gotten hurt or whose property was taken would be the journalists because they were there. Ordinary citizens weren't there. So I think it is also that it was the next logical step. But I do think there's a message here along with uh, the announcement that you won't, we won't be going after their private records and phone calls as part of looking at leaks, that the Department of Justice is saying the press deserves protection. And I think that's really very, very important. Yeah, I would agree with you. And I would say as a journalist, um, I've covered a lot of dangerous 
situations, crime scenes and, you know, protests where tear gas and rubber bullets were flying and all of these things. And I uh, took a new job at uh, during the Trump administration. And at one point when we were going through HR, uh, they said, you know what, if there are certain things that you don't want to cover because you think that they would be too dangerous, you have a right to say so and say, I don't want to cover that thing. And I only said listed one thing, and that was a Trump rally. Because of the fact that Donald Trump specifically orders his supporters to attack the press. And not only as a member of the press, but as a black woman, I thought that the risk of that would be much greater than whatever benefit I would have from covering that event. So that just lets you know the level of I would cover a protest with rubber bullets before I would cover a Trump Trump rally. You know, Forbes had a very good article. And again, I'll I'll put the link on our um, show notes Uh, that talked about 328 press freedom violations just between May 26th and June 6th. And um, there's a video that accompanies it that is horrifying from January 6th. And I think it's something that everyone should watch while we're talking about how dangerous it is to cover a Trump rally. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So... Barb, these charges that are being made against uh, the folks who attacked the press, they're a little different than the charges that are made by people who, uh, you know, stormed the Capitol and broke uh, broke into the building. Will they be hard to stick because the charges are that the actual um, claims against them are different? Um, no, I don't think so. I think these, these charges are going to be very solid. They've been using a statute, 18 United States Code 1752, And the portion they're using is the one that makes it a crime to knowingly engage in any act of physical violence against any person or property in any restricted building or grounds. So it doesn't have to be, uh, the victim doesn't have to be a, a government employee. It doesn't even have to be property that's owned by the government, any person or property. So the fact that they were on a restricted grounds and engaged in this, there's no special status or special protection that these members of the press get, just like any other uh, person who might've been a victim, uh, th- they stand in, in the same stead. But as we said earlier, it could very well be that this becomes a factor for sentencing, that their goal was to damage and harm the press in this country or to um, make it impossible for them to memorialize what happened that day. And I, I think that's a compelling argument. I think if I were a judge, I would find that to be persuasive, that that makes this harm greater than it would be uh, to, to an ordinary person because of what they're trying to do. You know, when President Trump talks about the press is enemy of the people. And then we see the numbers that, that Jill has pointed out in the Forbes article. Um, th- those words have some effect when the president of the United States says these things. It gives not just license or permission to others, um, but also almost um, a command to other people to believe that these are, are enemies of the people, that these are, are people who are harmful and that we, we should harm them in some way. It's it's such twisted logic. Um, and so uh, I think that these lawsuits or these these criminal charges are very important for that reason of making sure that the public understands uh, that the press is a valued institution in our country. 
Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. So, Jill, on a separate but related note, we know that President Trump is facing a number of civil lawsuits that claim that he incited a riot on January 6th. Well, uh, in his defense, he is claiming that the First Amendment shields him from those lawsuits. But a, a, a friend of the court brief was filed in that case That was pretty interesting. Tell us about that. Yes, that was a very impressive group of people, um, including Lawrence Tribe and um, Dean Minow, a former dean at Harvard, and I believe Erwin Chemerinsky, and one of Um, them filed Floyd Abrams. Does he know anything about the First Amendment? Yes, Floyd Abrams, who was your... (laughs) so yeah he's a leading first amendment person isn't he and i believe he was your he professor was. wasn't he, he was Kim? my professor so um uh showing the difference in our age i had herbert wexler and you had floyd abrams um but anyway they are experts in this and said whoa not not true you do not have a first amendment right to create an insurrection you cannot, it's, it's going back to what we talked about, the fire in the theater. The usher can say you can leave if you aren't going to stop saying there's a fire because you will cause a stampede and cause harm. And so, again, I don't think there's any chance that he's going to have a First Amendment defense to these uh, private lawsuits claiming harm from the January 6th insurrection. It, their brief is excellent and completely compelling to me, and should prevail. Um, I think that he is guilty of, as charged in these cases, and should have to pay the damages. Kim, have you heard about Girlfriend Collective? I really have. You know, I did yoga over the holiday weekend. Uh, and one thing that happens when you do yoga often, at least for me, is that your concentration is broken because your word, your, your, your pants are riding down or something's <laughs> pinching in your shirt. Um, but I tried the Girlfriend Collective uh, athletic top and leggings and I did yoga and I didn't think about what I was wearing once. It was so comfortable and it felt like second skin. I really loved it. How about you, Jill? I've tried the skort, which Ooh. is a, looks like a skirt, a little short athletic skirt, but it has like bike pants under it, like Fabulous, and it is the most comfortable. It's terrific for playing golf. It's terrific just for walking, and it looks really good. So if I end up going into a grocery store, I don't feel like I'm wearing my workout clothes, but it's really comfortable. I highly recommend the Skort. How about you, Barb? Yeah, I I too have um, obtained the Girlfriend Collective Skort. Um, you know, I I like to play tennis, but for the longest time, I've resisted the look of wearing a, a skirt when you play tennis because I feared it would make me look like I'm a player, and then there would be an expectation that I would play well enough to be a player. <laughs> so I've always worn shorts, but the skirt is the perfect garment because it is the combination of shorts and skirts. So, um, so yeah, I'm I'm a big fan. Girlfriend Collective is sustainable, ethically made activewear with their. Inc- 
inclusive sizing from extra extra small to 6XL. Their incredible bras, leggings, shorts, and skorts, tanks, tees, and swimsuits, they are the perfect choice. Whether you're working out, running errands, or doing nothing at all, Girlfriend Collective has functional fabrics, colors and styles for any activity, and all their clothes and shipping is 100% recyclable. Well, and here's the best feature, if you ask me. Their best-selling leggings come with pockets. Yes. Bravo. And they have different levels of support, so you can find the perfect fit. Uh, my favorite thing about Girlfriend Collective is their garment take-back program, Re-Girlfriend, they call it. When you change styles or sizes, you can return pieces for upcycling into new Girlfriend gear. Join us in joining the collective today. For listeners of the show, Girlfriend Collective is offering $25 off your purchase of $100 or more when you go to girlfriend.com slash sisters. That's $25 off of $100 or more when you go to girlfriend.com slash sisters. Again, girlfriend.com slash sisters, or look for the link in our show notes. As always, we've received some great listener questions this week. If you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlawpoliticon.com or tweet us using hashtag sistersinlaw. And if we don't get to your question during the show, keep an eye out on your Twitter feeds throughout the week where we will answer as many of your questions as we can. So our first question is from Jen. It says, can you please explain the terms with and without prejudice? That's a great question. What do you think, Jill? I'd love to answer that because it's really relevant this week with the Cosby um, case. The Cosby uh, conviction was thrown out with prejudice. What that means is that the prosecutor cannot refile the charges. He cannot cure the defect. It's gone. It's done. It's over. If it is dismissed without prejudice, it means that the error can be cured and the case can be filed again. All right. So our next uh, question is from Gail in San Diego. She asks, do the judges read all the majority and dissenting arguments before they are released? I think um, she means uh, opinions before they are released. In other words, is there debate? How does the court work? So the answer to that is yes. And I can speak, uh, especially when it comes to the Supreme Court. So what happens is, after a, a case is argued, that Friday, the justices get together. They used to meet in their chamber and get together. The, the least senior justice would have to answer the door or get the coffee and stuff. It's this whole process. But, you know, in COVID times, I'm sure they did this via Zoom. But they would get together and they would vote. They would uh, cast a vote as to how they uh, are ruling in this case. And then the chief justice... If he is in the majority or the most senior justice in the majority, if he is not, will assign the case to someone. They write an opinion. That opinion is circulated. Someone is on the lower side is assigned to uh, anyone really can write a dissent. Um, those cases are circulate. Those opinions are circulated as well. So the answer to your question is yes. And sometimes what can happen and has happened on key cases, um, it, it, things like the Affordable Care Act decision, for example, is that people can read an opinion and change their mind. They can be brought on either in terms of the reasoning. So say, for example, there is a majority opinion 
uh, that five justices agree upon. But if, uh, but one of them writes a concurrence and the other say, you know what? I like that reasoning better. They can join that concurrence and that concurrence will become the majority opinion. Very rarely, but it's possible that a dissent can be circulated and a couple of justices can say, you know what? I've, now that you've, you've really convinced me, I've changed my mind. I want to join that dissent. That dissent becomes a majority uh, decision and it can change things. Um, so yes, this absolutely happens. It is circulated. I don't think often there's that dramatic of change at the end, but it is possible. And Kim, I think it's the case, is it not? I heard Elena Kagan say this once when she was speaking that um, the justices in the court don't circulate their opinions by email. They do it in hard copy. They, no. they circulate them. They around. do it the right? old fashioned way. <laughs> Guess that they they do it unless something has changed in the pandemic. Um, But yes, it is done hard copy. And you think about it: the Supreme Court does not leak. The other two branches of government leak a lot, but it is very rarely we get any information about the Supreme Court that goes uh, into behind the scenes of what happens there. So maybe that's one of the reasons. All right. Our third question is from Jenna. It is, do any of you ever watch Law and Order on television? And if so, do you find yourself yelling at the TV? That's not how it works. So listen, Jenna, it's a curse being a lawyer and watching any sort of legal drama. Now, as a longtime fan of Law and Order, it happened pretty rarely there, but I'm not a criminal attorney, so I'll let the other sisters talk to that. But, you know, what? I can't watch a movie. You know, I was thinking about The Pelican Brief. Remember that uh, movie with Denzel Washington and Julia Roberts? Yeah. And at, at one point, she, like, marches into some office and says, you know, I need to see this document. And they're like, no. And she goes, have you heard of the Freedom of Information Act? And all of a sudden, she's running out of the office with the document. No, you file a Freedom of Information Act request. You at, you wait years sometimes to get a response that says, ah, we have nothing that is responsive to your request. Like, it never works like that. So Jim, but the can, movies are supposed the to be the, the willful suspension of disbelief. Like, do you watch The Wizard of Oz, too, and say, oh, I'm sure, like, Dorothy could just click her heels and go back to Kansas? <laughs> You know, but it's harder when it's about process and people are going to believe this, right? They're going to think, oh, just, you know, just say the Freedom of Information Act and poof, you get a document. I I want people to... I would answer the question (laughs) as a definite yes, I frequently yell at the TV, but my my worst experience was I was a consultant to a movie called Fatal Attraction with Glenn Close and Michael Douglas. I have heard of this movie. Oh, it's it's a fabulous movie. You should see it if you haven't. (laughs) Great acting. Wow. But you will also be offended by the clothes that Glenn Close wears because they do not look like a professional lawyer. And you will be astounded that she goes to the judge's home and has a (laughs) ex parte conversation with him. And I said, you cannot do that. And they said, well, we need to have this conversation occur. And I said, well, then have her talk to her husband or her friend. She can't talk to the judge. But they left it in the script anyway. So, yes, I was very upset about how that was not a correct portrayal. I have to go back and look at the, I'm going to say I have to go back and look at the ethical, legal ethical rules about boiling rabbits. But go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) The stuff that my husband left the movie theater when that happened because he is such an animal protectionist that he was beyond (laughs) upset. He literally walked out of the film. 
the stuff that always gets me is the portrayal of, you know, the FBI and CIA and all of these government agencies as with the state of the art uh, technology, you know, their computers uh, can provide these, you know, facial recognition images instantly at their fingertips. And in fact, you know, if you go into an FBI office, it's, uh, you know, a gray cubicle and they're outdated computers, <laughs> uh, you know, tin, tin cans connected by string, uh, you know, they're, they're doing their best, but um, often lack some of the state of the art technology. One film that did get it right, I thought, and I remember um, enjoying this moment was when um, Tom, was it, uh, who was in The Firm? Was it Tom Cruise? In the firm, remember that movie, the uh, the, uh, the yes. legal thriller. Yes, it yes. was. There's Tom a scene Cruise, yes. where Tom Cruise is trying to steal some documents, and he's sweating and he's nervous because the mob is is you know going to catch him, and so he's trying to he, he puts the the document on top of the copier, and he's trying to quietly copy it, and he hits uh, print, and it starts beeping at him and says, "Please enter client code." That was so accurate because a law firm will never allow you to copy a single piece of paper without making sure that they are charging the client. They will not. (laughs) Oh, that's that's hilarious and 100 percent true. 100 percent true. Oh, that's great. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Barb McQuaid, Jill Winebanks, and me, Kimberly Atkins-Store. We hope that Joyce Vance is having a great time. And don't forget to send in your questions by email to sistersinlawatpoliticon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag Sisters in Law. This week's sponsors, who we are so grateful for because they make this happen, are Noom, Pill Pack and Girlfriend Collective. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them because they allow us to bring this to you without a paywall. And keep up with us every week. Follow hashtag Sisters in Law on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. And we love to read your comments. See you next week with another episode. Hashtag Sisters in Law. Well, I want to hear more about Jill's time as a consultant on Fatal Attraction. Yes! Jill, was it Glenn Close? So, Jill, did you get to meet Glenn Close? And Michael Douglas? Yeah. I didn't get to meet either of them. Um, It was one of those weird things where I had a choice between having my name in the credits or getting paid. Oh. And because I was a partner at a law firm, three guesses what the law firm said. Yeah. You get paid. So I don't oh. even get a credit. I yeah. thought they would say we want the, you know, they would want the fame. No, they wanted they wanted the money. Oh, so well, I see, got now paid for it. Everybody knows that you did. It. You know what you should do? You should go on IMDb and just put yourself in there. <laughs> Is that I'm going to start doing yes. that for do other movies. That's I'm going to so put my funny. name in The Godfather and other great movies. <laughs> <laughs> Technical consultant. You just say Jill Weinbanks uncredited. Right, right, right. It was, it was, yeah, it was a lot of fun though, because you get to read the early script and you get to make all these suggestions. And as I say, the two that I really was upset about was um, how they described what she was wearing. Yeah. And I was like, no, no lawyer would dress that way in court. And the part about visiting the judge at home was like, you can't do that. No one, the judge will throw you out. Well, I have to say, as somebody who practiced law 
in the 90s in Boston at the time where Allie McBeal, remember that oh, yeah. show, was on the yes, air? Of and course. she would wear yes. these micro mini skirts. And there were judges that I was told, like, you don't walk in there without, like, a full um, long skirt suit and, and hose oh, yeah. and closed toed. Sh- I mean, and Allie McBeal is walking in in these little, like, you know, slide <laughs> flip flop shoes and these tiny little. Sc- I'm like, what Boston is she? She's walking. Is this Boston a city on Mars? Because this is not how any litigator would be going to court. So I, I get, I get. Not, not judging on how women should be chosen by their appearance, but I was just saying it was unrealistic as somebody who it was literally certainly was doing her job at the time that show was on the air. Of course, now everybody can wear pants, but. When I started practicing law, you could not walk into a federal court in pants. Wait, so you went into court without pants? You had to. (laughs) (laughs) Only could wear a skirt. Had to wear a skirt. 